0: Hey everybody and welcome to the podcast No Root No Fruit history of folk roots and Americana music one record at a time. I'm your host, Matt Watroba. Each episode will explore an iconic and inspirational recording from the genre and then feature an interview with someone who was moved to talk about it. If you enjoy this kind of thing, please check out the website, norootnofruit.com. Once there, you can read the transcripts for each episode, link to the recordings featured on that episode, and of course, donate to keep these episodes coming. That sound. The sound of two voices singing in close harmony, weaving in and out, one voice taking over where the other leaves off, blurring the line between the melody and the harmony. This is an essential sound in Roots music. It's a sound that has endured since the beginning of recorded music. That was Charlie and Ira Leuven, the Leuven brothers, recorded in 1959. They most likely learned this from a combination of the shape note singing they heard in church... As well as some of the other country duos of the 1930s, groups like the Blue Sky Boys.
1: Only say that you be mine, and in our home we'll happy be. Down beside where the waters flow, down on the banks of the Ohio.
0: Or the Delmore Brothers.
1: Hard love papa can't stand his ground He was a good
0: father, but he's done gone down Lord, Lord, got them browns
1: very blue Hard love papa standing in the rain If the world was corny, he couldn't buy grain Lord, Lord, got them browns very blue Or the Leatherman Sisters When we're inside the gates of Pearl We'll learn a lot of things We'll have a heart that's made of gold, perhaps a thousand strings. We'll sing and shout and dance about the land with we'll riot tears. We'll have a grand coming week, the first ten thousand years.
0: Those were all examples of blood harmony sisters singing with sisters brothers singing with brothers a sound that is near impossible to replicate unless you've spent your whole life hearing each other's voices
1: oh when i see that southern moon, i want to lonely team. I want to Shined
0: down again. There you have the Leuven Brothers singing a song from the Delmore Brothers. It's not hard to trace that sound through the decades right into modern music.
1: Dream Whenever I want you All I have to do is dream Dream, dream, dream If I give my heart to you I must be sure from the very start That you would love me more than her If I trust in you Oh please Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game and pretend Mm -hmm. But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness in harmony I need someone to comfort me Homeward we're bound But you don't know Never will hurt you Don't you know Know that I used to Pray like all the others On what you never will Honey won't you, honey please Hold that honey still Honey won't you, honey please Hold that honey still Honey won't you, honey please Hold that honey still honey,
0: Starting with the Everly Brothers, we moved on to the Beatles, of course, and then Simon and Garfunkel, and we finished off with the Milk Carton Kids doing Honey, Honey, recorded in 2013. So why am I playing all this music from the early part of the last century when the subject of this podcast was an album released in 1996? Because it was this combination of voice and style that inspired Gillian Welch to write the song that ignited her career. Here are the Stanley Brothers singing I'll Not Be a Stranger, recorded in the late 1950s. Through the
1: years, through the-
0: Lillian Welch heard folk music at a very early age. The songs of the Carter family, Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, were all around her as early as her school days at Westland Elementary in Los Angeles. She even performed some of them. She continued playing music through high school and on to college at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Her interests widened to include goth and psychedelic surf music. Her roommate in college introduced her to the music of the Stanley Brothers. This was the moment she, quote, found her music, unquote. After getting her degree in photography, Gillian took her love of this old-time music across the country to Boston, where she studied songwriting at Berklee College of Music. It was there, auditioning for the only country band at the school, she met her musical partner, David Rawlings.
1: Sweet too, cry and shame sweet tooth crying to shame. sweet tooth crying to gotta feed the sweet tooth ten times a day just to hear the wind blowing on a windy day
0: gillian and david ended up in nashville where they continued to write and perform and as one does in nashville surround themselves with creative people In my experience, people move to Nashville not just to get famous, but to immerse themselves in a community of folks who are devoted to the craft of singing and writing their own songs. Sure, there's lots of people there trying to seek fame and fortune, but the majority are creative people living and writing in a community of creative people. It's also not an easy place to make a living as a musician. That's why there are so many talented Uber drivers, wait staff, and in the case of Gillian Welch in the early 90s, innkeepers all over Music City, USA. While on her commute one morning, she was listening to a recording by the Stanley Brothers. Gillian challenged herself to write a song that would fit that style. What emerged that day was a song that would change everything for her and her musical partner. Orphan Girl became the song that would find its way into the repertoires and onto the albums of artists like Emmylou Harris and Tim and Molly O'Brien, even before Welch and Rawlings recorded it. It also opened doors to publishing deals and cleared a path to recording their first record in 1996, Revival.
1: Come on down and see us in Nashville, Tennessee, the genuine country. Fire. Music city, full of pride, southern friendly, starry eyed, home a country, true and true This is where it all began, from the Grand Ole Opry to Opryland. Let us show you Nashville fun, good times for everyone. The genuine country, five music city, full of pride.
0: That commercial for Nashville tourism from the 1990s hardly reflects the music of the Stanley Brothers. In fact, that so-called older sound was all but eliminated from country radio by that time. When Gillian and then six weeks later David arrived in Nashville in 1992, the charts were dominated by the clean-shaven, hat-wearing likes of Randy Travis, Alan Jackson, and Garth Brooks. Only a few women were included at the top of those charts, and they had names like Reba and Winona. I wasn't there, but I would imagine that the songs at the writers' rounds of that era sounded more like Achy Breaky Heart than anything the Stanley Brothers or the Leuven Brothers would have recorded. Enter the beginning of what would become to be known as Americana music. Artists like Guy Clark, Towns Van Zant, Rodney Crowell, Alison Krauss, and before long Gillian Welch and David Rawlings were starting to get the attention of publishers and fans. It was crafty and intelligent writing that was contemporary, but also steeped in the tradition of a sound rejected by mainstream country music. The music and songs of Gillian Welch and David Rawlings fit right in. Producer and guitarist T-Bone Burnett heard the duo when they opened for Peter Rowan at the Station Inn, Nashville's home for bluegrass and mostly acoustic traditional-style country music. He liked what he heard. More importantly, he agreed that the power in those songs were illuminated, not hindered, by the sparse arrangements. Well, the team was now in place to create a record that would be not only the introduction of Gillian Welch and David Rawlings to the wider world, but a record that would influence other artists to write new songs that attempted to sound timeless and perform them in a way that revives a tradition that has survived centuries. The session started with just Gillian, David, and T-Bone setting the mood for what was to come.
1: When I- will and sing. I will know.
0: Several songs were recorded just like that. Two guitars, two vocalists conjuring the spirit of those old duos both of the artists grew up listening to. The next round expanded to include some of Nashville's most respected studio musicians like guitarist James Burton, bassist Roy Husky Jr., and renowned session drummers Buddy Harmon and Jim Keltner. I mean, these guys played with Elvis, Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, most of the Beatles. The list really does go on and on. The result was ten short stories in song form produced and performed in a way that felt both new and old at the same time. Of course, there was some criticism about authenticity, Ann Powers, writing for Rolling Stone, criticized them for, quote, manufacturing emotion, unquote, and for not writing from their own experience. We'll address some of that later when I introduce my guest for this episode, but let me say now that it seems like manufacturing emotion and writing outside of yourself is part of the job of a songwriter. As far as we know, Stephen Foster never dangled a toe in the Suwannee River, and yet still did a pretty good job writing about it. Revival opens with the song that started it all. As I said earlier, Orphan Girl was an attempt to write something a traditional duo like the Stanley Brothers would like to sing. A simple statement of the longing to reunite in heaven with a family the persona of the lyric never had on earth. And oh, that sweet duo harmony. I don't know about you, but I can imagine the Stanley Brothers' version of that song without any trouble at all. The next track, "Annabelle," is a heartbreaking tale of a mother in the Dust Bowl era wrestling with hardship.
1: Released twenty acres and one.
0: hardship that leads to a devastating loss of her daughter. When I'm dating... And yet, somehow, still holding on to what's left of her faith. That's in the chorus. These first two songs might set you up to think that this whole album is a fresh revival of old sounds and old themes only. Well, that's quickly dispelled with the aid of distorted electric guitars and a song about a muscle car driver and a stick-up on the side. Pass You By was co written with David Rawlings, and I don't remember the Stanley Brothers ever sounding like that. Track 4 on Revival was written as a song Towns Van Zant might sing. If you're not familiar with Towns, you might know a couple of his songs that made it pretty big in the hands of other performers. Songs like If I Needed You by Emmylou Lou Harris and Don Williams, and Poncho and Lefty by Willie and Merle. The other hundred or so songs Towns wrote set and continues to set the bar for Americana songwriters to this day. He had a way of telling a whole story in just a few lines. This is exactly what Gillian Welch and David Rawlings do in the brilliant song "Barroom Girls." It starts with the night coming undone like a party dress.
1: Oh, the night came undone, like.
0: a deceptively simple song lasting just over four minutes about a girl going to bed and then getting up, brilliantly written to allow the listener to fill in the rest of the 400-page novel.
1: Now she rolls to her feet she can't sleep anymore. Looks at clothes Lying down.
0: Last night's spangles and yesterday's pearls are the bright morning stars of the barroom girls. I think Towns would approve. Next up, it's another short story in the form of four verses in a chorus, another co-write between Gillian and David. One More Dollar tells the story of a young man leaving his family to pick fruit as a migrant worker, just trying to make that one more dollar before he returns home for good. How does it turn out for him? Well, you should probably be detecting a pattern by now.
1: No works at the bar.
0: Gillian Welch, or Gillian Welch and David Rawlings, wrote all ten tracks on Revival. I say this because the next song, By the Mark, sounds like it's been in the tradition for a hundred years. If there is any doubt about Gillian and David's deep understanding of this style and their ability to write within it, consider the evidence.
1: By the mark. By the mark. Loud and bent. You made me feel Like they were
0: heaven sent Paper Wings is a song that simply casts a spell. It's no surprise that the drums on that song were played by the same guy who played on Patsy Cline's version of Crazy, Buddy Harmon. Oh, the subtle switch from the acoustic archtop to the electric guitar, the perfect amount of effects on the voice to make it feel old and new at the same time. There is just so much to love in that track. Well, one of the most covered songs on Revival is Gillian Welch's composition, Tear My Stillhouse Down, a simple plea and a kind of morality play. It occurs to me that I haven't said nearly enough about the guitar playing of David Rawlings. His search for the perfect acoustic guitar for these sessions landed him on the thin, tight sound of an archtop. His fluid, melodic style is perfect for these arrangements. The guitar lines he plays often become like a character in the song, like the brilliant little lick that should, and does, evoke a flower. Specifically, an acony Bell. With so many beautifully crafted songs of struggle and despair on Revival, Oconee Bell breaks through with a message of hope.
1: Will soon be gone.
0: Revival concludes with the longest track on the album, Only One and Only, a poetic and heartbreakingly beautiful exploration of loneliness. What a first line. There's a hundred bluebirds up above the clouds, putting all the color in the sky, and twice as many teardrops there to wash it down. Everyone's another lullaby.
1: But there's
0: I picked Gillian Welch and David Rawlings' revival for the podcast because there was nothing like it before, and it influenced so much of what came after. The style, the writing, the guitar sound are now woven deep into what we think of as Americana music. My guest for this episode is one of my favorite songwriters and one of my favorite human beings, Danny Schmidt. Danny's deep insights and thoughtfulness show up in everything he writes, prompting the Chicago Tribune to include him on their list of the 50 most significant songwriters in the last 50 years. His songs are deeply poetic and revealing. Sing Out magazine called him, quote, a force of nature, a blue moon, a hundred-year flood, an avalanche of a singer-songwriter. His songs are a flood of poetry, mythology, folk wisdom, and surprise. He is perhaps the best new singer-songwriter we've heard in the last 15 years, unquote. I happen to agree. Danny has released nine solo albums and one duet recording with his wife, Carrie Elkin, another very talented singer-songwriter. He was just starting to write songs when he encountered Revival by Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. He had no trouble recalling that first listen.
2: This is one album where I have very specific memories of it because um, I was living in a communal farm at the time and was going on, on my way to a craft fair. That was about 14-hour drive away with my girlfriend, and we were in a, in a cargo van that had a five-disc changer, if you remember those. And so we could only pick five records, and I picked a couple, she picked a couple, and I think we probably had some consensus pick in the middle. And this was one of the records she had, she had pulled. I had never heard of Gillian Welch. One thing that all of my favorite records seem to have in common is that I don't seem to like them straight away. Or or I not that I dislike them, but they don't really click with me. But given that we had basically 28 hours of driving over the course of of a week, I heard this one, you know, probably more than a dozen times and probably about take six or seven into it. I'm singing along with everything. It's deceptively brilliant writing. It's it's so elegant that it sounds it sounds kind of timeless in this kind of unimpressive way. It's not all this flowery language. It's just so Perfect, that you almost don't notice how elegant it is. And But by, by listen six or seven, I was noticing just how perfect the language was. And then I got probably six or seven more listens um, at the point that I was really appreciating it. And at the time that I got into this, I had just started writing, so I probably had some amount of awareness about the craft that was going into these things. I would pr- written enough songs, probably, <laughs> at that point, probably a half-dozen songs or something, enough to know how hard certain parts of the process are, enough to appreciate how well she had pulled it off. There's such a consistency. and She was kind of writing, they're almost dated pieces. They, they seem time-stamped in different eras. And the album's kind of interesting because the production kind of mirrors what era the song is is kind of pulling from. You know, if it's Dust Bowl era or you know maybe early '50s stuff like, um, what's the one? Um, Pass you by, kind of has a little bit later era sound to it. And she, she really chooses her language from the era of the melody and the style that the songs are pulling from.
0: I asked Danny Schmidt to comment on the criticism that surfaced at the time about authenticity and appropriation.
2: Yeah, it's tricky. I understand the concept of appropriation, but I also know that everything that we create, nothing gets created out of a vacuum. We're all kind of building on traditions and. I don't know how you define it. I know there's kind of a line that sometimes it falls on one side or the other of that line. It feels like you didn't add enough of your own bit to it to push it past appropriation into kind of homage or whatever. Also, I think if you do it well enough, you can kind of get away with it, whichever line you fall on. if it has such authenticity. I remember the book um, Education of Little Tree. I don't know if you ever read that no. it had it had a lot of the same debate around it i, I read it right around the same time that um, i started listening to revival and was caught wind of some of those arguments that were being made and it's this beautiful story about um this semi-orphaned boy who goes to live with his grandparents who kind of instill him with this uh, native american wisdom and and outlook and perspective on life, and it's so beautiful, beautifully written, and you you buy all of it. And then it came out uh, years later, not just had it not been written by a Native American guy, but it was written by the guy that was writing speeches for George Wallace, and had this extremely right-wing writing gig, who knows what his actual outlook was. But then, so did that knowledge then make the book less beautiful and inspiring? And you could argue, argue that for days. I, I still thought it was great. And when people were kind of debating whether an upper-middle-class girl from California could wear a hand-stitched dress and sing songs that sound like they weren't even written by anybody, they were written by a tradition from a group of people right. in you know 1910, I just kind of fell on the side of, this stuff's so good. Hey. For me the bar is kind of the um, suspension of disbelief if I'm into the third verse of the song and I could picture the woman in depression era Oklahoma who had written this thing and I'm still there with her then the songs working if at some point in the middle of the song it's like ah no this sounds like 1996 a girl from from California playing a character really well but playing a character and this this album there's very few moments of uh, breaking that suspension of disbelief. I think there's a self-consciousness about that issue of appropriation in the production. I, because I, I, I walked with this album a couple times this week, listened to it really carefully. and One thing that was kind of interesting is the, the songs that seem kind of the oldest and the most timeless and most sort of out of the tradition. I don't know if they recorded them around a single mic. They certainly mixed it in such a way to give that... It's very mono. It's both of them kind of together. The ones that are like that, T-Bone seemed to add little touches to remind us that this wasn't 1910. You know, the very end of Orphan Girl comes in with this kind of fuzz fuzz guitar. the guitar, the electric comes in. You know, it could just be a remastered Alan Lomax recording for the, the soundscape of it. Um, same, same with uh, uh, "By the Mark." That's another one that, they, and it's also very mono. It's very um, the, the two of them together in the middle of the listening field.
0: There's also been some talk about billing when it comes to the work of Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. If they are a duo, why is it just Gillian's name on the record?
2: So I didn't get to see Gillian. So this album came out in 1996. I saw her for the first time with David, of course, um, like 1999. At that point, I was not saying, and I didn't hear anyone else refer to them as Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. I just heard Gillian Welch, Gillian Welch, Gillian Welch. And then when I saw them together, it was so striking and obvious. Second, halfway through the first song, it's like, this is a duo. This is Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. And he's, he's adding so much to this. It struck me as a little odd they didn't build that way, although I interpreted it as um, he's just shy. Um, but, you know, maybe it was a marketing decision, maybe they decided to put the name behind the songwriting element itself, but um, they're such duo songs, even, even if they're not duets. All the- One of my favorite songs on the record is uh, um, "Barroom Girls," which is absolutely like a duet with her in the guitar. He's almost, almost replying to her lines, but also kind of illustrating her lines musically. She would sing this kind of little lament, and then he would, he would fill the hole after it with kind of the musical equivalent of what she had just sang. And that the solo on that song is one of my favorite moments on the whole record. It is so elegant. Props to TiVo Burnett for keeping it mixed down, not stepping it up. It really makes you kind of like lean into your headphones and try to catch all the nuance. But it is, it's so lyrical, like the way he plays and they kept, they didn't compress it a lot. It's got all this dynamic quality to it. It's like a voice singing with his guitar. It's like, okay, now now you take a verse.
0: I mentioned to Danny that, to my mind at least, the guitar playing in Coney Bell somehow evoked an image of the flower Gillian sings about.
2: Songs like that that match the theme and the lyrical quality to the music always feel so organic to me. You always feel like, you know, either they had their beautiful little melody and, what the, and that conjured a flower in their own head just the way it kind of did to you. That's how I imagine it. Or, you know, sometimes the other way around, they, they had what a couple flowery lines and, and it's like... Well, let's marry that to to a flowery melody. That's one of the songs on the record too, like Orphan Girl and uh, By the Mark. It really sounds like the two of them at a single mic. It's very mono and tight in the middle and, and it's, it just sounds ancient and timeless. Hey, old time legend, give me that.
0: As I listened to Revival, I kept wondering if they ever considered reviving an actual song from tradition to mix in with the originals. Turns out that version of old-time religion was being considered. Well, it didn't make the cut. Danny comments.
2: I think that was a smart artistic decision. It would make us wonder about each song without having to go, you know, I know that you're a liner note reader, and I'm a liner note reader, but you can't count on people going to the liner notes, and um, I... Think it's nice just to have this blanket statement. These are all Gillian Welch songs. They might not sound. They might sound like they come from the hills, but these are all Gillian Welch songs. And if you put one or two songs that had been uncovered by the Carter family, it would have. You would have been wondering. You know, by the mark, I would have assumed that was an old song. There's a lot of ways in which. Um Different writers raise the bar in different ways, different, different aspects of songwriting, but that was one for her, that she raised the bar as, ho- as high as it had been in my head around that, the idea of a just totally organic song that just feels like it was inevitable and always existed and not that, that a person didn't put it together out of their head.
0: No Root, No Fruit is written, produced, and hosted by me, Matt Watroba. I absolutely love researching and putting these shows together, but as you can imagine, it's quite a bit of work. Your support is needed to keep these shows coming your way. Please check out the website, no NoRootNoFruit.com to leave comments, read more about the albums and the artists, follow links to the recordings mentioned, and most importantly, make a donation. If just a small portion of you do that, we might be able to keep this ad-free. Thanks so much for listening.